Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. Today, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. This isn't what Woodstock was supposed to be. We thought it was going to be this beautiful thing. We're talking with director Jamie Crawford and producer Cassie Thornton. Organizers from the original Woodstock tried to recreate the music and magic at a new three-day festival in 1999. But concertgoers expecting another groovy weekend were met with high food prices, dirty water, and mountains of litter. And promoters learned too late their audience wasn't filled with 60s flower children. Instead, they'd drawn an army of rowdy thrash rock fans who'd showed their displeasure by literally burning it all down. At this point, it was, a, it was an, an emergency. They expected deaths. People trampled or assaulted and killed. Lives were at stake. And I'm joined now by director Jamie Crawford and producer Cassie Thornton. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So the newspaper headline was, quote, crowd riots after three-day music festival. And we hear in your series about the planning and execution of Woodstock 99. But the organizers who seem to bear like a lot of the blame, it seemed to me they went into the whole thing with something that looked a lot like optimism. Uh, Jamie, do you think that was the case? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think that is a fair assessment. Um, having, you know, we interviewed uh, both of the both Michael Lang, the founder of Woodstock, and John Sher, the promoter of Woodstock 99. And they are, by um, their nature, optimistic people. And I think they went in full of optimism for how it would turn out. So like the two leading figures there, Michael Lang and John Sher, they did seem to believe they could recreate this whole Woodstock vibe but also put on this corporate sponsored music festival. But it does seem like you can do one, but not both. Is that right, Cassie? I think that's totally right on. I think that um, their expectations weren't necessarily matched up with the reality. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with trying to put on a festival that will make money. In fact, you know, you have to do that. But if those are your aims, then I think you have to be a bit more realistic about what you can achieve in terms of those good old fashioned 1969 vibes. I'm just curious, Cassie, do you feel that then and or now um, that they're minimizing the scope 
of the issues and, and their role in that? Because in some of these interviews, they still seem to think like, you know, we did our best. Uh, <laughs> we, we still feel kind of good about it. And, you know, we kind of did our best. I, that's sort of, I was kind of getting that vibe from those guys. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I guess I'll take them separately and I, I can't speak for them, you know, so of course this is just based on like there are interactions or interviews. I think that with Michael Lang in particular, and you know, as you know, or maybe the audience doesn't know, he um, unfortunately passed away short after our interview with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think towards the end of his life, he was also trying to just think positively and think about his legacy um, and the legacy that he was going to leave. Although again, I can't speak for him. So I think um, in speaking with him, he definitely did take some responsibility but I, but I think he was in a, a different place. Right. So before we really get into what happened, I'd love to know a little bit about your creative process because there was a lot of optimism also among concert goers going into um, the weekend. And you talked to some of them during the series. And I'm wondering what that was like, you know, how you tracked them down, what it was like talking to them, what it was like watching uh, those conversations. Jamie, um, First of all, the two dudes, kind of my favorite <laughs> characters Keith. in this. Legends. Yeah, Tom and Keith, they sort of had a little Beavis and Butthead vibe watching the two of them. I don't know if you guys felt that way. Very great. 90s vibe still today. Um, so just talk about the process of involving those concert goers. Well, actually, you know what? I, I cannot take um, any credit for having found Tom and Keith. Um, Cassie grabbed this one because Cassie and Sasha are other producer are uh, uh, fully to thank for for recruiting the amazing um, cast of, of festival goers that we had. I'd love to hear about that, Cassie. So finding the attendees was one of the most exciting and enjoyable parts of uh, this filmmaking process because there was such a plethora um, of willing participants out there. And that was one of the best things about this show. So we found people via Facebook. We found people via friends of friends, people that worked in, in the production team. They would then refer us to other people that they've kept in touch with over the years. So we literally scoured the internet articles um, and people's uh, Rolodexes in order to find attendees. Now, Jamie, were you surprised at like the visceral intact memories that these people had of this weekend that happened, you know, 23 years ago? Yeah. Oh, yes and no, because I think, you know, for all of us and I'm, well, I sort of speak for the 40-ish, 40-somethings kind of crowd, when you, everybody has those sort of visceral memories of experiences, of formative experiences baked into their teens and twenties, right? And I think I was really surprised that everybody I met um, and everyone I talked to has a Woodstock 99 story, whether they were there or not from our generation, much like our parents' generation have a Woodstock 69 story. Um, and, and it's always really interesting, I think, when you have the um, opportunity to sit down and do long interviews with people over many hours, then you can kind of poke and prod memories out of people that they didn't knew they had. At the time, Keith and I, when we were only 16. Love you, mom. <laughs> never been to a concert before. Whoa, I was like, corn's gonna be there, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine. I was like, oh my gosh, we gotta go, we gotta go. Tom said, you wanna go to Woodstock? Hell yeah, I wanna go to Woodstock. And suddenly you'll talk about something and they'll go, oh my God, yeah, I remember this time. And these, and you get to the point where you're accessing those kind of sensory memories about sound, about smell, about the feel and the heat. That's when you, that's when you know you're getting gold and it's just a joy. 
it was incredible, too, how their memories and all the people you interviewed synced up so beautifully with the footage in the film. And people remembered like how a, a, a set started. They remembered like the way that it smelled, the temperature that it was yeah. uh, in. I mean, and it really synced up with the film so beautifully. And you always think that, like, am I remembering that right? They were remembering it right. Um, and one of, one of the things that I was wondering was, you know, you had so much raw footage to work with, uh, three days of a festival. How many hours were you talking about even before you started conducting interviews of footage? Was there available to you when you were making this documentary? We don't know exactly, but I think, but it's in the hundreds. There's certainly hundreds of hours of, but because we had access to the official footage. So, you know, all the onstage cameras and the, the pay-per-view footage um, and all of this, the working working with John and Michael, the festival footage. Um, and then we were on a constant mission to find that personal gold, which is, the, you know, the dusty tapes in people's attics. Um, were those Everybody, there would be one person in a group who'd have a mini DV cassette recorder. And when we found that, that was just magical. So it was probably hundreds of hours of archival footage, plus maybe 100 plus hours of interview, I think. And this was a really interesting show because every person that we spoke with had some kind of archive, whether it was a relic from the festival itself or pictures on a Kodak disposable camera, uh, VHS tapes. So that was a, a really exciting part of the discovery process is just unearthing, as Jamie said, people's old relics and archive from a time in which we didn't have the camera phones that we have today. Uh, so sometimes people wouldn't even know what was in these old boxes they had under their bed and um, what they came out with was just incredible. And that also helped to access a lot of memories uh, through the mm. process. One of the amazing finds was the footage shot by Pilar Law, Michael Lang's assistant. Um, what did that perspective bring to your understanding of the narrative? Because it was so inside, Jamie. Well, I think that was one of our main aims. You know, I think we set out with two goals. Firstly, our, our golden rule was that we only wanted to interview people who were there on the ground, who, who lived it and were contained in that in that very large fence and um secondarily we want we were keen to kind of pull back the curtain on the production and get on the inside of it to find out um what were the ingredients that that went into it um that may or may not have contributed to how it turned out and in fact what were the ingredients perhaps that were left out as well um and through pilar uh and as you'll see in there her her mum was a, a key figure in Woodstock 69. Hence her, she was on a personal mission to to record Woodstock 99 for, for posterity and her own life journey. And it was incredible to to get that look into the production meetings um, and that, that, uh, that angle on the story. I did love her mom, Lisa Law. She had been a photographer at the original Woodstock and we see her, she has these dreams of this like 60s communal vibe coming back. And of course they crash up against the yes. reality when she tries to hand out trash bags to get people to pick up after themselves. She pulls no punches in her interview either. Trash bags for your area. Trash bags for your area. Come on, everybody help out. One person said to me, I paid $150 to be here. You should clean it up. And I said, well, this is a different kind of Woodstock. Maybe these kids don't have enough love. Maybe they're acting this way. 
Doesn't this sum up the disconnect between the organizers and the concert goers? Yeah, I think it's a great example, um, especially because part of the reason why the story unfolded the way it did was the time period, 1999. You know, what was going on socially and politically, um, who the kids were that came to the festival. So I think that that was definitely (laughs) a disconnect between the people that were going to Woodstock 1969, you know, this sort of like anti-Vietnam War movement trying to come together versus um, the new metal scene of 1999. And the commercial exchange, isn't it? I think that's the thing. There was was great expectation from this, from these tens, hundreds of thousands of teenagers and young 20s who who turn up to the festival and they pay their 150 bucks for a ticket and they expect a certain level of service and so on in exchange. And when that wasn't realized, that's one of the main factors that really pissed them off. Well, I was well out of high school in 1999, and I do remember a lot of this. I remember those $50 concert tickets and hearing about the $150 access pass. But what I did not remember was the sheer scope of this event, a quarter of a million people. I had no idea of the built infrastructure, the huge fencing they built around this enormous Air Force base, this Griffey's decommissioned Air Force base. Um, no, I, I just, I didn't have a sense of it. Um, Cassie, did you have a sense of, of the scope of the planning of the built infrastructure that they tried to go for here? When I started working on this, I had absolutely no idea. But as you know, you start researching, talking to people and learning about it, you realize that they essentially picked a venue that they thought had infrastructure, but it didn't. So they had to build infrastructure for not only 250,000 attendees, but also don't forget the thousands of people that worked there that were living on site for months leading up and then actually during the festival. So a really funny story that came up about this is when the production staff actually got on site and they went to these, uh, their quote, accommodations, they were actually like these army barracks that had nothing in them and like, you know, no air conditioning. It's the middle of summer, um, no running water. And even for our attendees, there were challenges in terms of the infrastructure. And then from there, they had to actually build the entire site uh, from the ground up. Yeah. I mean, we heard stories about that infrastructure failing, of course, the water quality story. We did hear about this concert goer who described a sudden pain in her mouth. So I wake up Sunday morning. I have a very sore throat. Uh, cold sores all over my lips. I had ulcers all over my tongue and my gums and in my mouth. And I can't eat. I can't drink. I can hardly talk. I found out that I had something called trench mouth, basically from drinking unsanitary water. I did not think one could get trench mouth at a concert, but that sounds horrifying. Uh, Jamie, how horrified were you to hear about, the first of all, the fact of the existence of something called trench mouth? Well, I think actually what, what was horrifying was when it was backed up by um, Joe, who was the, the sort of public health inspector who told us that he'd taken away these little Petri dishes of samples of the water on the Sunday and was horrified to find them crawling uh, with with parasites and all sorts of yucky illnesses. But yeah, the term trench mouth will stick with me forever. Exactly. When I just etch a sketch in my head and never think <laughs> yes. about that again. So the original Woodstock had drugs, nudity, of course, but it was energized by this anti-war movement. It created this aura of peaceful hippies communing with nature. 
Woodstock 99 had drugs, had nudity, but this generation didn't have an animating social message. Instead, as your documentary points out, Cassie, pretty much all of the pop culture messaging in the late 90s revolved around toxic masculinity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, to say the entire um, social plane at that point was about toxic masculinity is minimizing it. But certainly the music at this festival was certainly geared to, to an audience that was these, you know, young, predominantly white teenage men. And so you get them all in one place at one time. And it's not necessarily a recipe for disaster, but if you put, you know, lay all those uh, brick by brick things that went wrong during the course of the three days, it certainly became a recipe for disaster. Hmm. What do you think about that? It's a good point to make that Cassie says about the music that was specifically at that festival, because it was designed when John Cher was telling us about how he booked the bands that he booked, he not only booked sort of the most commercially popular bands of the day, but also the bands who had the kind of fans who would come to an event like that. Hence, you don't see Britney, whose teeny bopper fans, you know, may not have had parents who would let them go up and camp in upstate New York for three days. And you get this very kind of polarized um, group that are, that are represented. So I don't think it's, it's kind of symptomatic of the whole of society, that sort of white young male angst at that time. But I think it was certainly um, a symptom of, uh, of the, the, vo- the most volatile portion of the people who attended Woodstock 99. I found myself thinking, though, you know, there seemed to be some of the organizers, especially some of the younger people in the crowd who uh, seemed to understand that the kinds of fans that this, that this festival would attract might be problematic but if the headliners were Bruce Springsteen and U2 and Prince instead of Corn and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, would things have played out differently? Or maybe like would 250,000 people not have shown up for this for this event in, in far upstate New York? I mean, that's what I found myself wondering about. What do you think, Jamie? Well, I think actually if you, you know, we touched briefly at the beginning of the story on Woodstock 94, which was the sort of the, the other sibling of the Woodstock family and the that festival five years before this one was designed for a crossover generation, right? They wanted to appeal to the original Woodstock crowd for them to bring their kids. And hence they, you know, they had much, they had Bob Dylan playing there and they had a much more sort of crossover lineup. Um, whereas the idea behind 99 was that we are handing over the Woodstock baton to the next generation. And so whilst there was, you know, Willie Nelson and a couple of hints of times gone by, the the bulk of the, the acts were very much, you know, those that were a big hit with the teens and the 20-somethings of the late 90s. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about what actually happened. There was this moment where we see Corn and Bush closing on Friday night and the weaknesses in crowd control are laid completely bare. Now, Cassie, it seems like there was a lesson right there that was missed. No, I think that certainly there were things that could have been done. I mean, the whole ethos around the security um, was this thing called the Peace Patrol. So it was essentially recruiting all of these young security guards, and I'll say security guards in quotes, um, to come and, quote, police the festival. But it was they were just supposed to be there um, as this more of like ode to 1969 Kumbaya presence. There were only like seven actual like state troopers or, or um actual police officers on the grounds. And that was a choice by the organizers. So I think that when 
this massive crowd of 250 people is getting totally amped up in mosh pits for like the corn set, for example. Um, There was just not the type of security infrastructure to handle something like that. The security guards were not experienced enough. And in fact, as you'll see in the show, many of them just, you know, blended right in as audience members, never to be seen again. So certainly Mm -hmm. I think security is something that could have been handled right at the get-go, right at the outset, um, you just bring more more people in. You bring in the people that have the experience. It was very interesting to me to see, Jamie, that there were a couple of acts, women acts in particular, who really got a sense that there was something wrong when they took the crowd's temperature. And, you know, we have this great video of the moment that it occurred to Cheryl Crow and Jewel, like, there's something really wrong here. You know, see Cheryl Crow, like, responding directly to somebody in the audience. You know, there were... More than a few cat calls. Show us your tits. Show my tits. You'd have to pay way more than you paid to get in to see my tits. It's can you? It's very, very difficult to watch in 2022 that play out for these women artists, right? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, what was interesting that you know you gather from interviews with Jewel uh, and and the footage that you see of Cheryl Crow is the kind of disappointment because everybody holds Woodstock in in awe, right? Everybody wants a piece of Woodstock, and the chance to perform there is amazing. And it was it was a testament to their experience that they basically played their gigs got off stage, got back in their bus and left straight away. Um, as you see, happened with Jewel. And I think, I think Cheryl Crow was pretty much the same. And, and Fatboy Slim told us that he was exactly the same. He was bailed off, the, off stage and, and left immediately. There is this incredible scene in the documentary. And I just want to say the editing of this documentary is just incredible. And this is a great example of it. We hear the journalist David Blaustein talking about Fred Durst's set with Limp Biscuit. Then he has to add... Now, when this song kicks in, I want you to fucking kick in. And that's it. Kerosene, match, boom. Even John Cher seems to admit Durst was bad for this concert. Was the Limp Bizkit performance a turning point? What do you think, Jamie? Um, I, I think it was the halfway marker. Um, Fred Durst has been ever forever scarred by Woodstock 99 in terms of his reputation and hence his uh, you know, reluctance to do interviews. We, we were in lots of discussions with him and never managed to get it over the line. Um, actually, the, the fires and the carnage and the true meltdown happened 24 hours later. But I think it's certainly the Limp Bizkit set contributed to the overall environment. And as you see, you know, like you were saying, it's it's credit to the editors who really managed to to put us on the ground in that moment when we're pinging between all of these different perspectives from the side of the stage and from the mosh pit and from backstage, um, that really brings that brings that moment to life. But as as Kyle, our incredibly uh, eloquent security guard, tells us, you know, blaming Fred Durst for what happened at Woodstock '99 is like blaming a bear for being a bear. I totally agree. I think that the Fred Durst show was just one contributing factor amongst many, and I think. That is what was so interesting about these three days. It's not not one thing was the main contributing factor. It's that all of these things together in aggregate are what made this a perfect storm. So it seemed even on the final night that Lang believed he'd assembled a nation of flower children when they incredibly 
passed out 100,000 candles to this half-maniacal crowd. I knew nothing about plans for a candlelit vigil. Immediately, I started screaming into the radio, you can't do this, it's not approved by the fire marshal. I don't know what's going on out there, tell me what's And John Sher just tells me to shut up and get off the channel. Now, Cassie, I feel like a terrible person, but I also, when I was watching this, found a little bit of dark humor in that, like... What was he thinking? What were they thinking at this point? What do you think they were thinking at this point, Cassie? Okay, so look, we do have someone in the show, our you know, head of security, Dan Flynn, who posits a conspiracy theory. And I am not usually one to be a conspiracy theorist, but I have to say, I think that there's something really enticing about the idea that the original Woodstock is this legend and that this was just going to be some big concert. So how do you make a big concert a legend? Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> you pot, you pot stirring, pot stirring. Wow. <laughs> well, it worked. It's, I mean, there's a documentary about it. <laughs> you know, it has been said that P, some PR is better than no PR. So, <laughs> hmm. yeah. I think one of the fundamental discoveries, which was in a way perhaps the most kind of fascinating piece of information that I took away from this whole project is that, you know, recapturing the lightning in a bottle of Woodstock 69 is basically impossible. But also, you know, it, the, the image that we have of 69, which was the load that they sort of bore going into this one, is kind of a misconception anyway, because we all have the movie in our minds when we think of Woodstock 69. We don't think of the logistical failures that happened there, the fact that they also wanted to make money and didn't, you know, and so they're trying to, they're trying to kind of, ca- trying to carry that magic across to 94 and to 99 is, is, is next to impossible. And the, the candles and the sort of peace vigil aspect that they had tried to repeat from earlier Woodstocks was just another one of those ingredients that just didn't work. Yeah, I found myself thinking over and over again, they're not trying to recreate an experience. They're trying to recreate a memory and a legend of an experience, right? Because everybody knows, everybody like my age, I'm going to be 49 this year with boomer parents knows that anytime they talk about Woodstock, the story gets better and better and better, right? So I just kind of felt like when we're hearing about it, we're actually hearing the echoes of it. Mm. And what they're trying to recreate isn't actually what they're trying to recreate. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, the, that was one of the fascinating things, I think, wasn't it? The interviews with the the um, young production staff who went into this project with these incredible hopes of what this what might become this landmark moment in their lives as well were really, really intriguing um, when it came to how it turned out and how they felt as a result. So you did have a quarter million sleep deprived young people who had just spent a weekend in a scorching heat in a drug-fueled, sexually charged, garbage-strewn camp with unsanitary water, overpriced food, and music acts that encouraged them to go wild. One of your guests said it should not have been surprising that a riot ensued. What do you think, Cassie? Should it have been surprising that a riot ensued at the end of this weekend? Well, I think, first of all, it's always surprising if there's a riot. <laughs> It would have a different name, probably. 
you know, I think, I think of you, I think you would have never imagined even things going as they did, that it would have ended the way that it did. So I think it is surprising. And I think even though there were many factors that contributed to things being incredibly difficult for many of the participants and many of the attendees, I think that this mob mentality really did take over and that it was incredibly, as David Blastin says, animalistic and people started acting like animals. So I think it was, I think it's shocking even till this day. Some of the people that you talk to in the film, Jamie, do seem a little numb talking about it. Did you, did you experience anybody talking about it that seemed to be still like have a little bit of like Woodstock 99 PTSD? Like when they think about it, they're like, I cannot believe this happened to me or I cannot believe this happened around me. I think everybody we spoke to could not believe that it happened to them or around them. Um, and the I was just as we were saying earlier, I think the biggest surprise um in the interview process was just how visceral those memories were once you kind of poked them with a stick it all came flooding back um and that's what really brought the whole thing to life Hmm. i also think that there are some people that we spoke to that were not filmed um that had really you know pretty difficult memories about it and didn't want to relive them on camera so this wasn't all, as you'll see from the show, but it wasn't all just fun and games and, you know, laughter. Um, there were some really difficult, dark moments for people that were there that, and they'll never be the same again. So I also think there were, there were some really, really tough moments through those three days for some of the attendees. Well, yeah, Cassie, and, and you do touch on this in the series. You know, there is this specter of sexual harassment and assault uh, hovering over the weekend. There were there are rapes reported once people left the festival. And John Scherer makes an argument that given the size of the crowd, the number of assaults was acceptably low. All things considered, I'd say that there would probably be as many or more rapes in any size city of that. I'm not condoning it. It was wrong. It was horrible. I wish we, we caught everybody. I put them all in jail. Um, but considering there were 200,000 people there, um, it, 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 it wasn't something that gained enough momentum so that it caused uh, any on-site issues, other than, of course, to the, to the women it happened to. That answer... Does not sit super well with me. Um, how about you? Um, the idea that in a city people get hurt or, or raped or sexually assaulted doesn't hasn't really ever jived with me because I think when you're buying a ticket to go to an event, there's a different duty of care to the attendees. It's not exactly the same as a city where everyone is, you know, they, we say it in the show, paying taxes or that there's certain type of law enforcement presence. So I don't think that that is, a, is really an excuse for there to be sexual assaults or, or rape or any sort of unsafe behavior, um, whether it's towards women or anyone else. I know that it's very easy to lay all of the problems and the blame of everything that happened at Woodstock 99 at the fault of, as the fault of the organizers. I mean, there were a lot of mistakes made, obviously. But, Jamie, it is very hard to also not say the people who came and rioted and did all the stuff they did, they do bear some responsibility here, too, right? 100%. Yeah, 100%. I think they, you know, I think um, 
if you watch the footage as it plays out in the closing minutes and they are really going bananas and tearing this place to pieces, you can see a lot of them are kind of jumping on the bandwagon and having a great time doing it. And it's, it's very much an active decision to, to get involved. So, you know, David Blasting, again, who you touched on earlier, was, was pretty vocal about that too, is that everyone made a choice to tear stuff down and set it on fire. If the festival had been named anything other than Woodstock, do you think this story would have the same resonance? I think the story would be resonant, um, but I don't think it would necessarily have the same resonance just because of the legacy that Woodstock and what it means to all of us um, signifies. I think if you'd given it a different name as well, if you had called it, you know, perhaps more accurately Rockfest or something like that, it would have been organized in a different way. You know, it would have been policed in a different way. The fact that they, you know, that they're trying to sort of give it this Woodstock imprint um, it is, in many ways, was its downfall. Well, director Jamie Crawford and producer Cassie Thornton, uh, the documentary's train wreck, Woodstock 99. It is great. I think everyone should watch it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Jamie Crawford and producer Cassie Thornton. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>